Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we have a guest. Joining me is Rebecca Bauman from Bloomington, Indiana. Rebecca's day job is head of library public services at Indiana University's Lilly Library. The Lilly contains one of North America's finest collections of rare books and manuscripts. However, today we're not going to be talking too much about that. We're going to focus on Rebecca's personal book collection. So, Rebecca collects crime, science fiction, horror, and what she describes as smut paperbacks from the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Welcome, Rebecca. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. Right, so let's start with just a very simple question. How big is your your personal book collection? This is actually my least favorite question because I don't know, and I've been kind of weirdly resisting to ever counting my books, maybe because it's kind of scary. Um, It's certainly in the thousands. Um, As you mentioned, one of the things that I collect is pulp paperbacks, and they... They were, they were designed to be portable and convenient, which means they're also very convenient to store and you can fit them almost anywhere. I also think it, it's possible they might be multiplying while I'm not looking. So I certainly have several thousand paperbacks and then uh, the rest of the book collection um, is probably also in the thousands. Uh, my wife also has many, many books. So our house is one of these sort of groaning at the seams with books houses on every available surface and some surfaces that are not available books in every room absolutely in the kitchen um uh, i guess i guess there aren't any in the bathroom but that that might be the only little spot that's free of them yes i i know the feeling so would it be fair to say that you're drawn to books that are weird or unusual or perhaps a touch on the seedy side is that a correct thing to say yes that's very true in fact i've struggled to define my collecting parameters in any way beyond if you look at a book and you're like huh that's weird it's probably something that i would be interested in owning or learning more about so I definitely, the, the paperbacks are the biggest collection, um, but I also collect all kinds of things related to horror, film, and fiction. So I have also a fair bit of ephemera, lots of um, monster magazines, things like that. Um, and I'm also easily distracted and will happily just start running down another path Um at any given time but certainly weird unusual strange dodgy seedy all of these things are things that i love right and, and why is that why why are you fascinated with the unusual or the weird or the slightly borderline <sighs> that's a good question i you know part of it i think you know we all gravitate well maybe not everyone but a lot of people gravitate towards things that were forbidden to them as as children um And I can remember going to the public library when I was maybe about eight and uh, my, my mom was out of town. So my dad was taking me to the library and somehow I managed to pull Pet Cemetery and Clan of the Cave Bear to check out. And when my mom got home, she was like, 
no, <laughs> take them back. Um, so I think it's, you know, things that were a bit naughty or a bit forbidden as a child. Um, I and I sort of grew up, I grew up reading things like like the Babysitter's Club and Sweet Valley High, which I'm still I'm really fascinated by that stuff, too. And and somebody needs to start collecting this sort of um, trashy teen fiction. But as soon as I was old enough to choose my own things i i always started choosing things related to monsters um horror ghosts crime murder sex all of the bad things um i find to be oddly consoling and a lot of fun i i think you're not the only one (laughs) no (laughs) (laughs) so crime science fiction horror that's three vast genres and then if you go into pulp that's also a vast sprawling uh format i guess i'd call it um who are the authors that that matter to you well kind of my you know my main people are the sort of high weird authors so hp lovecraft of course um arthur machen is very very important to me the great god pan the three imposters the hill of dreams are books that i read again and again and find a lot of meaning in um, Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, Clark Ashton Smith. Now, this all comes with kind of the caveat that I also am very invested in reading against the racism and sexism that is is inherent in a lot of these works. So I've been really happy to see in the past few years a lot of fiction, fiction I think even better than criticism, that is doing this. So things like... Um, Victor Laval's book, The Ballad of Black Tom, which takes H.P. Lovecraft's uh, Red Hook and kind of deconstructs it um, from the perspective of a black protagonist. Um, Paul Lafarge's The Night Ocean, which looks at Lovecraft from the perspective of his young gay fan, R.H. Barlow. Um, I just read this amazing book called Helen's Story by a writer named Roseanne Rabinowitz who rewrites Arthur Machen's The Great God Pan from the perspective of the demonic femme fatale. So I love I love all of those writers, um, but I also want to read against them. And in the past couple of years, I've really become invested also in finding and recovering women who write weird fiction. So... Um, People like C.L. Moore, of course, who was kind of one of the queens of the pulps. Marjorie Bowen, Vernon Lee, um, Emma Dawson is a great writer that very few people have read. Wrote these very, very uh, subtle short stories. Shelley Jackson is very important to me. She's kind of getting her day uh, with the new Haunting of Hill House um, TV show right now. I've been really, really invested this year in Rachel Ingalls who uh, I I found her, as many people did this year, especially because she wrote this book called Mrs. Caliban, which is basically the same story as Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water, which won the Academy Award. It's woman falls in love with creature from the Black Lagoon, basically. But Engel's version is, is much more subtle and much more sad. And I've been reading pretty much everything she wrote this year and trying to find first editions of her novels, which are still very available because she's not, not terribly well known. Right. And if I can go back a moment, can I, 
did did you say reading against like dated yes. content? What did yes. you mean by reading against? Well, rather than just kind of, I guess, eating the stories as they're presented to you, um, reading them critically and perhaps against the author's intentions, right? So when H.P. Lovecraft is writing about, for example, the immigrants that he encountered in New York, he was absolutely horrified. This was terrifying to him that all of these people whose languages he didn't understand, whose faces he didn't recognize, were all around him. And he he found that to be horrible. And when he's writing that, he is conveying that horror. And so to read against that would be to say, well, what was the immigrant experience at this time? What are their stories? What would they have to say about this? So kind of not what Lovecraft intended us to think, but think a little bit deeper into uh, what he's writing. And I can't, you know, I can't quit Lovecraft, you know, yeah. even knowing everything I know about him, his stories um, on a sort of cosmic scale, the, the, the nihilistic um philosophy behind them is very interesting to me so um finding ways to read them um i think in a responsible way and teach them in a responsible way is is important to me so really it's fiction but the historical context of the situation that book was written in matters and you want to understand that absolutely okay makes sense so is there um is there one particular book that that takes pride of place in your collection? Oh, well. Th or this week, one particular <laughs> book that you love yes. most this week. I do have, I guess, my my all-time favorite book that I own. I have um, an Arkham House edition of H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountain of Madness, which is a nice thing to have in and of itself. But the copy I have is uh, belonged to Thomas Ligotti. So H.P. Lovecraft is my favorite dead weird author and Thomas Ligotti is my favorite living weird author he's incredible so this has his book plate it's inscribed to me um so it actually has my name written by Thomas Ligotti which is like magical um so that's that's very special I'm the collection I'm kind of working on most um but very slowly is a sort of cabinet collection of late 19th and early 20th century horror and um the thing that I added to that fairly recently last year was uh, a 1909 third edition of Robert Chambers' The King in Yellow, which is a story that if, if people know about it, they usually know about it through the TV show True Detective, which cites it quite a bit. It's an right. incredibly weird collection of stories. And so I'll never be able to afford a first edition. That's just not, I'm a librarian. We don't have that kind of money. But <laughs> the third edition is the first illustrated edition, and it's actually rarer than the first. It's more scarce, but I was able to get a copy, you know, because it's not that first thing. Um, I got that from my favorite bookseller, uh, Jonathan Kearns, who sells a lot of incredibly, issues these really, really wonderfully written catalogs of weird fiction, right. and um, I bought that from him last year, and that was that was a big deal for me. And is there a book that you would like to own but don't yet? <laughs> thousands, hundreds, thousands. Um, I think one book that is kind of on my 
I've really got my eye on. I, I've been looking at copies that are out there. Um, there's a, a bibliography by E.F. Blaylor, who is was kind of the great bibliography and scholar of supernatural fiction. And it's a little book called The Checklist of Fantastic Literature. And it's a lovely bibliography. It's published by this publisher called Shasta that was not in business for very long. But what's amazing about it is the dust jacket. Um, it has a monster and a naked lady reading a pile of books. Um, it's beautiful. And it's done by Virgil Finlay, who was... Um, he worked, uh, he illustrated Weird Tales, The Pulps. He did um, some of the Arkham House books. So it's it's beautiful um, artwork. And I'm just kind of waiting for a copy that speaks to me, like maybe a cool association copy or something. That's that's one that's very high on my, like, I really want this list. Right. And if we go back in time, w was there a moment when you, you realized that you had become a 100% book collector? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I, yes, definitely. When I, I was, I got my MLS, uh, Masters of Library Science here at uh, Indiana University. And uh, I took a class for that uh, with Joel Silver, who's the director of the Lilly Library and is now my boss. Um, and is, he knows more about books than any other human I've ever met. And it was a class called Rare Book Curatorship. And uh, we, we learned about the history of book collecting and we read John Carter's book, Taste and Technique in Book Collecting. And it was really reading that and taking that class that made me realize, first of all, that I was already doing this a little bit and that I really wanted to do it more. And the great thing is I teach that class now. So it's my class and I get to, I get to share this now with, with more students and try to help them understand that beautiful sort of cycle of collecting that you you look at something, you want to have it, you have it and you start to learn about it, you learn about it and then you start to share it with others, which for me is really collecting is not just about, you know, sitting on your, your treasure hoard, but it's really about sharing the stories that you learn from these things that you love. So that class defined your, your prof professional career direction as well. It did. It was it was a very was a very pivotal pivotal moment for me, um, both professionally and personally. Okay, um, let's talk smut. Um, your pulp paperbacks. What's your definition of the the smut area of pulp? <laughs> how are you? How would you explain that one? Yeah, I guess smut is kind of one of those like, well, I know it when I see it. I I tend to think of smut as kind of the kinds of books that that promise a little more than they deliver so they have racy covers but not the content doesn't really verge into pornographic and you know i sh i would totally collect pornographic paperbacks if i could afford them but that's if you collect paperbacks that's one of the most expensive areas to get into um and I'm lucky to be on the campus with the Kinsey Institute for Sex Research, and they've got everything. Um, <laughs> but the kind of smut that I I seek out, um, one of my favorites that I have that's kind of one of the gems of my collection is a book called Panda Bear Passion by Ori Hitt. I encourage everyone to Google the cover. It's very memorable. It is 
rather naughty um to just to warn you but it look at that cover and like that's my definition of smut i guess it's just it's it's a it's a it's a woman a naked woman holding a stuffed panda bear with this kind of bubblegum pink background um i have googled it and it is almost (laughs) comical yes yes it is and that's kind of i love this stuff because it is it's kind of funny i also think it is really historically important. I'm interested also, especially in women who are writing this stuff. There's a writer called Peggy Gaddis who wrote a lot of, um, she wrote romances under her own name, but then sort of erotica under male pseudonyms. I love gay and lesbian pulp, um, which is also very expensive. But if I ever see it, I, you know, in the wild, I snatch it up. Um, but that stuff it is important because it helped people learn about themselves and you know express themselves at a time when it was difficult to do so right uh, so you mentioned you have a favorite bookseller jonathan kearns um where do you like to go when you're when you're hunting for books well i don't i don't get to travel as much as i like but everywhere i go any city or town that i visit i always like before I go, the first thing I'm doing is seeing if they have any any used or uh, rare bookstores. Um, I just was in Detroit a couple uh, weeks ago and got to visit um, John King Rare Books, which was amazing. Yeah. Um, we have this incredible uh, annual book sale here in Bloomington, Indiana, which just happened in early October. So that's like a big annual thing for me. Um, And then I had the amazing, amazing experience last summer of going to the ABA and the PBFA fairs in London. So those were the first major book fairs that I'd been to. And it was like just um, like a fairy tale um, being among all those books and among the booksellers who are so knowledgeable and who have found all of these things and know so much about them. Yeah, visiting a fair like that is rather like going through a history of literature. Absolutely. You, you see all the books who were, who um, have who mattered that mattered really. It's it is a humbling experience. Yes. So when you are out looking for books, have you had any what we could describe as like a, a fist pump in the air moment <laughs> of discovery? Yeah, definitely. Um, happens all the time paperback hunting because paperbacks are often like in bins and racks and at garage sales and so when you turn up panda bear passion at the bottom of a stack it's like oh yes i know what this is and this is great um probably the the best moment i i did have a um a book that i bought at the fair in london this summer um it was not from a dealer who was exhibiting but who was visiting and he had a copy of this book called Death of a Sadist by this author uh, named R.R. R. Ryan, whose whose gender has been in question for a long time. Um, and pretty much it's been determined now that that it, that that he's a man. He's this theatrical manager named Evelyn Bradley. But I I read these books and to me they they just scream that they were written by a woman. So there's still some question about whether it could have been his daughter. Um, but they are so rare. You, you never see these things for sale. And um, he had this. He was going to sell to another dealer there. He was pricing it at 750 pounds, which is 
more than I will ever be able to pay for a book. Um, and after we got talking about sort of my love of R.R. Ryan and how amazing it was to just see this, he was like, well, how much would you pay for it? And I was like, well, I've never really paid more than 200 for a book. So he gave it to me for 200 pounds. It's wow. a lot for a book, but there's actually, there's a copy of this out there for sale for well over a thousand dollars. So it, it's, um, it's a special thing to have and it's, it's quite shabby. It doesn't have its jacket, but I'm very, very happy to own something written by this mysterious person. So did that book become the most valuable item in your collection? I think it is. Um, I think it is for sure. I have a few other things. I have a second printing of The Great God Pan um, that's that's fairly valuable. I have an MP Shield um, second edition of, of The Pale Ape. Um, but the Ryan, you know, if I were to sell everything now, would, would probably be the most valuable. Okay. But you are very familiar with rare books through your through your day job um you handle some very very special first editions uh at work you you've handled a first edition of frankenstein um what is that like it must be a thrill it is it is i i, I get to i get to hang out with 450,000 books every day um and you know i i I could probably, I well, I know I could find the Shakespeare first folio blindfolded in the vault. Um, you know, I'm down there all the time. So on the one hand, you do get kind of used to it, right? You just, you're handling these incredible treasures on a regular basis. On the other hand, what is so wonderful about working in a rare book library is that not a week goes by that I am not surprised, floored, flabbergasted, by something that I have never seen that's been here you know it's just it's been sitting here it's cataloged but there's just so much that there are always new things uh, for me to see um, and I have I've really spent the year with Frankenstein I curated an exhibition for the 200th anniversary and you know I I, I highly recommend that everyone touch the 1818 edition in original boards at some point in their life if if you can, um, and you can at the Lily, one one of the things that's great about us is that we're open to everyone, and anyone can request to see anything in our collections. So, I get to uh, work with all kinds of people and and share this enthusiasm with them. Do you watch people when they, when you say you can open that book or you can touch it? What's their reaction there? It's. It's so great. So, I mean, the one of the main things that I do here is is teach classes. And I've taught about 600 class sessions here um, in the past six years. So I've that's thousands and thousands of people ranging from elementary school students to um, retirees, uh, mostly college students, but lots of people. I have seen people cry. Um, I will say that currently... Um, the first edition in original boards of Pride and Prejudice is the winner of the tear race. It makes wow. more people cry than anything else. I've seen people like spontaneously um, burst into applause, you know, when they learn that they're going to get to see something. Um, sometimes you do have to overcome a certain reluctance, like 
is it okay? People are kind of afraid. They're worried that it's very fragile. Um, and of course, we do want to make sure that these things, you know, last for hundreds more years. But um, once they sort of realize this is here for me, right? I am special enough for special collections. It's a wonderful thing to see how much people get into sort of pouring over things, finding, you know, marks that readers have left in books, doodles in the margins, um, evidence of ownership. And that's really sort of my my belief in librarianship is that we are we are spirit mediums. We are here to help the dead speak, the people who wrote these books, who printed and made these books, and who read and loved and saved these books. And we're kind of just the channel, we're the conduit, but the conversation is between those people and then, you know, our students, the public, the people who come in to, to see these collections. If you weren't a librarian, and I can't ever see you not being a librarian, <laughs> would you be a bookseller? Uh, yes. Uh, so I, I will always be a librarian, I think, but I I fantasize on a regular basis about being a bookseller. I'm, I'm a bit smitten with sort of the idea of booksellers, and I, I've met so many booksellers that I just admire so much. They, I mean, not only are they very smart, but they have a certain kind of courage um, to do what they do that I'm not sure I have. Um, but yes, I, I do think about it. And I, if I were a bookseller, I think what I would want to do is put together collections of this kind of stuff that I love, of comic books, of pulp magazines, of paperbacks, um, kind of curate little teaching collections for libraries, because that's kind of I know the need that we have. You know, there are there really are no libraries, for example, collecting romance novels. And I think it would be so fun as a bookseller to sort of put together what's important and significant and would be useful for teaching and then sell that to libraries to use. Um, but yeah, I, I don't see myself leaving anytime soon. No, I, I don't think you will be. Uh, so one one final question which I ask everyone, what book or books are you reading right now? Ooh, I'm so obviously, you know, it, we're in um, Halloween month and there's scarcely a time when I'm not reading horror, but especially in October, I want to make sure that I get some good ones in. Um, I'm reading a novel right now that was published in 1975. It's called The Auctioneer. The author's name is Joan Sampson. And it's, it's, brilliant it's very very much in the tradition of Shirley Jackson and unfortunately Joan Sampson passed away uh, died from cancer very shortly after it was published it, it came out it was super successful it was going to be a movie and then she died and so there was nothing else but it's been uh, it's been reissued by Valancourt Press which is this incredible publisher that does gothic stuff supernatural gay literature they publish everything good basically um and it's kind of getting this second life and i i like to imagine this alternate timeline you know stephen king's carrie came out in 74 this came out one year later maybe there's a universe where joan sampson lived and she became as big as stephen king and we have this kind of female horror tradition that's just as strong 
Um, but I, I have read it before. I'm, I'm rereading it. It's been a while, and it's it's so good. So if you love horror, um, definitely pick up The Auctioneer. It's, it, it's one that deserves a, a bigger fan base. I will look it up. Um, thank you. So that's all we have time for this week. Uh, a huge thank you to Rebecca Bauman for joining us and telling her about telling us about her collection. Um, if you have an interesting book collection and you want to talk about it, just like Rebecca's been doing so, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Email me at podcast at abebooks.com. Thanks for listening. My name is Richard Davis from Abe Books, and we'll see you next time.